Good morning, brothers and sisters. This morning we're going to continue our study, Genesis 18 and 19. I trust you have your Bibles open. What kind of host are you? Are you known to be hospitable when you invite people into your home? Do you welcome guests by lavishing upon them a great feast? Or do you only provide the basics for a meal? Do you get by on just a bare minimum? In our story this morning, we see two types of host. In chapter 18, we see the hospitality of Abraham. And in chapter 19, the hospitality of Sodom. We see two contrasting pictures of one who welcomes angels, prepares a large feast for them, and another group in the city of Sodom. As they welcome strangers into their city, they seek only to devour them. Friends, with your Bibles open, I want to show you just sort of the outline that we're going to use this morning. In chapter 18, we see Abraham and his intercession for Lot and his family. Then in chapter 19, in sort of a parallel contrasting way, we see the Lord rescues Lot from his judgment. So there's one thing I want to encourage you this morning as you read through Genesis 18 and 19. I want you to see the parallelism between the way Abram relates to the Lord, and the way Abram serves his guest, the way that Lot serves the same guest, and how the city itself serves those guests. We see a contrast between the Lord's blessing in chapter 18 and the Lord's curse and judgment in chapter 19. We see that God declares a blessing to Abram in the beginning of chapter 18, And then in the second half of chapter 18, the Lord declares judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. In chapter 19, we see two pictures, the picture of destruction and the picture of depravity. We see an unraveling. You could even see a parallel between chapter 19 and the story of God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and that of Noah and the flood. We see God's judgment of sinners. In our story this morning, we see that the Lord confirms His promise to Sarah and Abram, demonstrating righteousness and justice and judgment. We see that our God is a judge who will not allow men to rebel against Him forever. Yet, in the midst of judgment, God saves for His glory alone. And so let's turn now to the story, Genesis chapter 18. I'll make a few comments as I go through the text, uh, just helping um, shine light where it might be obscure, make some passing application throughout, and hope that our time this morning serves us all well. Well, if you look there in chapter 18, we're told in verse 1 that the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. This is a second appearing of the Lord. We're told that the Lord comes with two other guests. Two angels accompany the Lord as he makes his way to Abram and his family. And in this section, in verses 1 through 15, the Lord declares blessings to Abraham and his family. The next 24 hours will prove to be the most de- decisive in the life of Abraham. And you think about how much Moses, how much time, how much space, how many words in chapter 18. And 19. They encompass only a 24-hour period. 
he spends yet so much time uh, describing the events of this single day in the life of Abraham, I think to demonstrate its importance to the story of Israel. I hope to show you there is so much here that Israel was to learn, and by connection, the church is to learn about the Lord. Well, as I alluded to, as you read, I hope you saw in verses 3 through 8, the hospitality of Abraham. Abraham demonstrates tremendous hospitality as he throws them a great feast of choice foods. Uh, look at the verbal idea that, that is painted here by Moses. A, a near 100-year-old man is rushing around the house, accommodating his guest. He demonstrates what it looks like to walk before the Lord. He was running, we are told. This 100-year-old man running. He's, he's going quickly here and quickly there. Uh, he is wanting to put on a tremendous feast. And, and really, as you look at the, the kind of material that he uses, a, a morsel of bread, oh, that's more than he gives, isn't it? He gives them uh, bread. He takes a tender calf. Uh, notice there in verse 7. A tender and good calf. He doesn't just, you know, take whatever's available. He goes out himself and handpicks the best. Verse 8, he took curds and milk and the calf and prepared and set it before them. Abraham prepares a royal feast, a feast fit for a king, a feast for the king of glory. We see in, in his hospitality, worship. Brothers and sisters, as you just think about Abraham's hospitality and how it serves an example for us. As Hebrews 13.2 reminds us, do not, neglect to sh- do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Well, the text clearly indicates that Abraham knows that these aren't just ordinary strangers. These aren't just men passing through. No, he understands that it is the Lord who has come. Well, in the second half of chapter, in the, in the next uh, scene, rather, uh, we see that as the men begin to feast, they ask where Sarah was. Look there in verses 9 through 15, we see again the Lord's announcement of Isaac's birth year. Now, last week we saw that the Lord had promised to Sarah that she will bear a son. Abram and Sarah had to learn to trust the Lord's promises. But this time, the Lord puts a date on it. He doesn't just say, hey, in the future sometime you're going to have a kid. But rather, he says, this time next year, you will surely have a son. There in verse 10. Well, of course, like anyone else, Sarah doubts the promise. Not because it would seemingly be impossible to have a child, but remember how old she is. Look there at verse 12. Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, reference to Abram, shall I have pleasure? As the text makes clear, Sarah is not able to have children anymore. Because of her age, she has ceased to have the ability. The point of the text is so clear that the way of woman had stopped with her is to make clear that this child will only come by miracle. Through a miraculous birth, the promised child would be born. The long-awaited seed of Genesis 3.15 has arrived. Only one other child in all of the scriptures is announced by angels and who's also born through a miracle. His name is Jesus. 
And it's his hope that we look to as this story foreshadows that long-awaited seed who will come through Mary. We see in this text that God is the God of the impossible. Look there in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The Lord is God Almighty. Nothing is too hard or too wonderful for the Lord. Nothing is impossible for the Lord of creation. God is able to bring life where there's death. Bruce Walkie helpfully says, The one who reads her thoughts can open her womb. Friend, how does God's promise to Abraham and Sarah teach you to trust His Word? Even when it's impossible, how are you tempted like Sarah to laugh at God's promises rather than to trust them? Friends, we're entering into the the Easter week as we begin to think and reflect about the death and resurrection and ascension. What more impossible thing than a dead man will come alive after rotting for three days? No, our God is the God of the impossible. Trust Him and His promises. Well, as the scene changes, we see that Abram and the Lord and the angels make their way to Sodom. In verses 16 through 33, through the end of the chapter, the Lord in this section declares judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And as they make their way out to look upon the cities of the valley, As they look down upon these cities, the Lord reveals His plans to Abram. If you look there in verse 19, you'll see that that the Lord says, For I have chosen him, that is Abram, I have chosen Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. You see, Abraham was in a covenant relationship with the Lord, and the fact that the Lord reveals His plans and purposes was an act of grace and mercy. And because they are in that relationship, the Lord is kind to reveal. The Lord reveals that it has been reported the grievous sins of the cities of the valley. As chapter 19 will depict just a small glimpse of the grotesque sins of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Upon hearing of this news, Abraham leaps into action. His heart is broken to hear, not only of their sins, but of God's judgment. In verses 22 through 33, Abraham begins to cry out in intercession for Lot and his family. You see, Lot was his nephew, and Lot had had made his way into the Jordanian Valley, where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were, and he was living with his family. At some point, he must have given up his work of of working in the fields and has made his way to the city. As chapter 19 will indicate, he's there at the city gate. Abraham intercedes for his nephew. He cries out for him in this passage. And notice here in in verse 25, rather, if you just look at verse 25, as Abraham appeals to the Lord, he appeals to the Lord's character. He appeals to who God is. He doesn't try to change God's mind. He doesn't try to somehow twist God's arm. But rather in the text, what he's making clear is who God is. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. 
In other words, Abraham is appealing to God's justice. God is a just judge. Therefore, he would not condemn the righteous with the unrighteous. Far be it from that. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God is a just judge. Therefore, it would be unjust for him to punish the righteous along with the wicked. Brothers and sisters, take comfort in that truth that Abraham reveals to us about God. That his judgment of your life is right. It is just. He will never punish those who do not deserve punishment. In this text, we see that Abraham is persistent in his plead for mercy. He's persistent. He, he, goes, uh, he starts with 50 and, and moves down all the way to 10, pleading with the Lord, If there be just a few, will you save the city? Do we understand such persistence when we pray for the lost among us? Do we genuinely desire the mercy of the Lord? Perhaps we don't pray for the lost because we don't believe they will die in their sins. Or perhaps because we're too callous to care. Abraham knew this city. Abraham was not ignorant of their ways. But yet he pleads for the Lord's mercy that he might save. This is similar to Jonah. You remember Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew if he went to Nineveh and preached the gospel that those wretched sinners would turn from their sins and trust in the Lord. But we see an entirely different picture here of a righteous man pleading for the Lord's mercy. Or like Moses after him, when the nation of Israel sinned in the golden calf and God said that he would wipe out the entire nation, the Moses went and pleaded before the Lord for his mercy. He appealed to the God who is merciful and abounding in steadfast love. Friend, this morning, who will you persistently intercede before the Lord? Who is the one in your life who needs to be saved from God's judgment? Will you devote time to pray for them this week and in the coming months? Friend, do not shy away from the Lord, but persistently plead for the Lord's mercy. For our God is a merciful God. As Deuteronomy 4.31 reminds us, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that He swore to them. Friend, our God is a merciful God. Was the story, as the scene ends in verse 33, the Lord goes His way. Ten is enough, and sadly, there won't even be found ten righteous in the city. Frankly, it appears that, as time will tell, there really wasn't anyone righteous. Not even one. Well, as this scene closes, a, a new one opens. As we've seen the hospitality of Abraham we'll now see the hospitality of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. The first scene we're told in chapter 19, verses 1 through 29, is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see contrasting hospitality, do we not? In, verses 9, in chapter 19, verse 1 through 3, we see the hospitality of Lot. Lot shows a generosity to these angels. He wants them to come and stay the night in his home. The angels insist, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. 
There in verse 3, we see that Lot pressed them strongly. He knew what would come of these men if they spent the night in the city square. He knew the wicked ones would come and devour them. Yet he shows hospitality. But even his hospitality is imperfect. In the next scene, as he brings them into his own home and sets before them unleavened bread and they ate, we're told that the men of the city come out. This text is to demonstrate to us the proof that the Sodomites are irredeemable. That the wickedness of the city must be demonstrated to the reader that they know that God is a just God. Verse 4 makes clear the universal nature of sin in the city. It wasn't just a few that deserved death, but rather the whole city came out to devour these angels. It is a deplorable picture. As these men grope to kill, to rape these angels, Lot himself falls to their own foil. And as a father and provider and protector of his daughters, he is not commended for his behavior. As he seeks to satisfy the lust of these men, he's willing to sacrifice his own family to save these angels. But the angels alone are able to protect themselves. As we see in verse 11, that the angels struck the men with blindness who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they whore themselves out groping for the door. Lot fails to protect his family and his guests, and these men came only to devour. Bruce Walke again helpfully says, Whereas Abraham extended himself to serve his guest, the Sodomites try to consume their guest in service to themselves. Well, the angels have come to do one thing, and that is to destroy the city, but not without saving and preserving Lot's family. In the next scene, we see the angels crying out to, to Lot to, to get his family, his affairs and orders, and to get out. And we see here at the end of verse 14 that as Lot goes and tells his family and his son-in-laws, they think he's just joking. This is a contrast to uh, Sarah's laughter at the promises of God, these angels promise that God is going to destroy this city and they laugh. There's a sense of blindness to the impending judgment. And friend, this morning I wonder how are you callous to think that you will not be judged for your sin? How does God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example for us as Christians to fight against the temptation and to flee sin in our lives? How does it warn us from following the ways of the world? Jude 1.7 reminds us that, that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was, a, was an example to us. That we do not go their way, but go God's way. Well, as Lot gets his affairs in orders, we see that Lot lingers. Look there at verse 16. The angels are saying, come on, let's go, let's go. And, and he's just sort of piddling around the home. Act of tremendous mercy, these angels literally drag Lot and his family out of the city. They take him by the hand. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. It was because of the promise that God had made to Abraham that he saves him. Friend, how does God's mercy towards Lot and his family encourage us? to turn from our sins and to trust Christ for salvation. 
How does it further encourage you this morning to trust the Lord's deliverance when we are living in a perverse city like Sodom? 2 Peter 2.6 reminds us that if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Listen to what Peter says. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of deviling passions and despise authority. From this story serves an example that God is able to save the godly from trial. And perhaps this morning you are in an immense trial. Globally, our, we, are, we are in the midst of a trial. And friend, may we trust the Lord today. May we give ourselves to depend upon Him and know that the Lord can rescue us. Well, as the story continues, we see God's judgment displayed. The Lord destroys the cities of the valley as He rains upon them sulfur and fire. The Lord is the one who destroys them. God is righteous and just. He condemns sinners. And this is a foreshadow of what will come at the end of the world. God will judge those outside of Christ will not be saved. As we see God pouring out His wrath upon these wicked men and women, we're told in verse 26 that Lot's wife was behind him and looked back. And upon looking back at the city, she became a pillar of salt. What is it in your past that you look back at in fondness? Would you rather look at the city of sin or look forward to the celestial city? Set your faith upon Christ for the killing of your sins, John Owen said. His blood is the greatest sovereign remedy for your sin-sick souls. Live in light of Christ's great work and you will die a conqueror. You will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. Abraham was a witness to God's great wrath. Our great and mighty God was faithful to His promise. Verse 29 sees that that covenant relationship was the only thing that saved him. God was faithful to His promise to Abram. He will not forsake His people. He is a gracious God. Friend, how does this story of God's wrath and judgment of sin help you see your need for Christ today? You see, it's only through Jesus Christ that we can be saved from God's wrath. Our fate is the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. Our sins, though not the same, or perhaps they are, deserve God's judgment. This is a picture of our need for Jesus, the one who bore God's wrath, who was judged in our place. As 1 Peter 2.23 reminds us that when he was reviled, that is Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, that is to his Father, who judges justly. He Himself, Jesus Christ, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friend, turn from your sins to Christ today. He will mercifully save you from God's wrath. Well, as I sure in your reading of chapter 18 and 19, your head was spinning at the sin that you read. It is as if things go from bad to worse, from the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and the men of the city to the sins of Lot's own children. Human depravity is clearly on display. In the last scene of chapter 19, we are told of the birth of Moab and Ammon. Lot's daughters concoct a quite unseeming plan to become impregnated by their father. Frankly, you can take the girls out of the city, but you can't take the city out of the girls. They demonstrate tremendous rebellion against the Lord. And this story teaches us and teaches the nation of Israel and meant to help them understand the origin of these two great nations of the Moabites and the Ammonites. These two people groups will be foes and friends. Moses will warn the nation of Israel not to mess with the Moabites and the Ammonites, but to leave them alone because of his relationship with Lot. But we'll also see that the Moabites and the Ammonites are also foes. They continually pester and inflict pain upon the Israelites. What are we to make of this story? And this sordid tale of Lot's daughters becoming pregnant by their father, and the birth of these two sons, these two nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites. What would come of this perverse line from these perverse family? As the story of redemption unfolds, hundreds of years later, a righteous and faithful Israelite will redeem a young Moabite named Ruth. And through their marriage and the subsequent children they will have will come their great-grandson, King David. And then a greater king will come from the Moabites. His name is King Jesus. Friends, it's a reminder this morning to us all that God uses imperfect people in His perfect story of redemption. Our God is a merciful God. He is just in His judgment, but He is willing to save sinners for His glory alone. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that You would use Your Word, that You would teach us who You are, that we would learn to trust You, trust Your promises, to turn from sin, lest we be swept away in judgment, and find that Christ was judged on our behalf, that by faith alone in Christ alone we are saved and we do not have to face Sodom and Gomorrah. We do not have to face the same fate for our Savior faced it for us. It is in His name we pray. Amen.